Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Open your Bibles. We're going to start in 1 Timothy chapter 3, but then we're going to spend all of our time in 1 Timothy chapter 2, but we're going to start in chapter 3 this morning in 1 Timothy. Many of you are probably familiar with Pastor Rick Warren, Saddleback Church, one of the largest churches in America. What you may not know is that Saddleback Church is a Southern Baptist church, and in 2021, Saddleback ordained three women pastors to serve in their church. It caused a lot of controversy. And then last year, when Rick Warren retired, he appointed a husband and wife team to be co-pastors of the church where his wife is the teaching pastor. Well, this has also caused a controversy within our denomination because back in February, the Credentials Committee of the Southern Baptist Convention voted to disfellowship Saddleback Church for being in violation of what our statement of faith says about women pastors. And this has caused great confusion because a lot of churches are beginning to follow his lead and do this. Now he's going to show up in June in New Orleans at the Southern Baptist Convention to appeal this decision and he's already made public that he's going to lobby for women pastors in the Southern Baptist Convention. So as a church... We need to know not what Rick Warren's doing, because who cares? As a church, we need to know what does the Bible say about this issue so that we as a church can continue to adhere to sound doctrine. And I'm going to tie my shoe because I just stepped on my shoelaces. And I don't want to trip because that would not be very graceful. I've got a lot to cover in this sermon today, and I'm not going to get everything done in one sermon. So today, I'm going to do my best to just explain the text. Next week, we're going to address objections, alternate views, problem areas. So if I didn't answer all of your questions this morning, come back next week and hopefully I'll do a better job. And so, what's the overall theme of 1 Timothy? Why does Paul write this letter to the young pastor? Well, we find out actually in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, why Paul writes it. So let's just look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. We will keep coming back to this because this is the purpose for the letter as a whole. Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that... Okay, why are you writing these things, Paul? So that if I delay... You may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Paul wants there to be both relational and theological unity in the church. We need to understand how we are to function as a church family. So Paul is shifting into a new section here in 1 Timothy. He's going to talk about the function of a church, 
What are the roles of Christian men in the life of a church? What are the roles of Christian women in the life of the church? Who are the spiritual leaders in the church? The elders? Who are the deacons? And so we're going to look at these issues, these vital issues, over the next few weeks. How we ought to behave in God's church. So our text for this morning is actually 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8-15. And this is loaded with a lot of controversy, and I'm ready to jump right into it this morning. So, let's do this together. 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. She will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now Paul begins this chapter with prayer, as we saw a few weeks ago. And then he talks about how he desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And now he gets very specific, and he begins to address the men. Lifting holy hands in prayer. Now, this is not a dogmatic or a prescribed way that men were supposed to pray. This was the traditional way that the Jewish men prayed in the synagogues. They would pray with lifted hands, symbolizing sacrifice, symbolizing submission, symbolizing surrender. This was read earlier during our time of confession from Psalm 141 verse 2. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Praying with lifted hands. But notice what Paul says, praying with holy hands. Holy hands. The focus here is on moral integrity. The focus here is on purity. To not be contentious, to not be angry, but to be prayerful, not divisive. Now, men, I'm going to talk to the men this morning for a little bit, and then we'll get to you ladies, but let's talk to the men first. Men, sometimes we tend to be competitive. We tend to be combative. We tend to always want to be right. We tend to kind of be contentious at times, and we can carry these attitudes into the church where we have bitterness we have anger we have superiority we have competition and this actually hinders our praying and remember this is in the context of false teachers so these false teachers were probably somehow influencing the men to stir up anger and divisions and quarreling and it affected their prayer life so men let me just ask you a question are you stepping up to the plate and leading your families your wives and your children? Are you leading by example? Are you known for being a gentle man of prayer or being a contentious man of division and anger? You know, we can be strong men who stand on the truth and not be jerks about it. 
May God raise up strong, courageous, godly men who are prayer warriors who lead their families and lead churches. I love 1 Corinthians 16, 13-14. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Act like men. Be strong in the faith. Isaiah 62, 6-7. This was ancient Israel when they had watchmen on the walls. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. All the day and all the night, they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. Men, are we watchmen on the walls? This means that we're looking out for danger. This means you're protecting your wives and your children. You're crying out to God in prayer and giving Him no rest. You see, men, we are protectors, we are defenders, we are spiritual leaders. And our church needs godly, strong men to lead. And our nation needs godly, strong men to lead. Where are the godly, strong men? Would God raise up men, holy men, men of integrity, men of strength, men of honor, who are courageous defenders of the truth and who protect our families and protect our churches. So men, let's step up to the plate and be the men God has called us to be. Defenders, protectors, spiritual leaders for our churches, for our families, for our communities, and for our nation. Now in verses 9 through 15, Paul appeals to Christian women and he addresses the way they dress, their apparel. Now let me give you a little bit of cultural background about the city of Ephesus. In the city of Ephesus, you had the temple to the goddess Diana. Huge temple. She's also known as Artemis. And there were cult prostitutes that were in that temple and they dressed very provocatively. Also, there were a lot of wealthy women in Ephesus who also dressed very ostentatiously. And they would pile their hair up like towers and put all these gold and jewels. And so probably what was happening was women were getting saved out of wealthy lifestyles and prostitution and coming into the church and still dressing the part and being an ungodly distraction to the church. And so... The Greek women would dress very provocatively. The Jewish women would dress modestly. And so it was, it was a stumbling block. And so there was this wealthy women that dressed a certain way. And then there were prostitutes that would dress a certain way. And so I don't think Paul here is forbidding braids. I don't think he's forbidding gold and pearls and expensive clothing. There's other places in the Bible where gold and silver are championed, like in Revelation 20 and 21 where it talks about the new heavens and the new earth. It's not, it's not bracelets, it's not earrings, it's not necklaces, it's not gold and diamonds. It's not those issues per se. Here's the issue, women. It's how you carry yourself as a Christian woman. 1 Peter 3, 3-4. Do not let your adorning be external the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold and jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. 
Christian women are to reflect this godliness by dressing modestly, dressing appropriately. Now, I need to say a word here. There's nothing wrong with physical beauty. There's nothing wrong, ladies, with having a good figure. That's, I'm not against that, okay? But true beauty comes in a respectable, gentle, godly attitude that's backed up by good works. You see, modesty and self-control and propriety are great feminine virtues that are actually attractive to godly men. Modesty, self-control. You see, this modesty is an inner attitude. It's women where you get your lust under control by the Holy Spirit, you set your mind on things above, and when this attitude is pervasive in your life, it reflects how you carry yourself and how you act out in public and what you wear. Here's the bottom line, women. You should spend more time and energy on spiritual growth and godliness than you do on your appearance. Now, there's nothing wrong with spending time on your appearance, but if that's all you care about, if all your time is spent in front of the mirror looking at your appearance, how you dress, spend more time on godliness and spiritual growth and cultivating that attitude of godliness. Notice how Paul addresses purity of both men and women. Men lifting holy hands, men of integrity, men of purity, women dressing modestly. So here's the point. In the life of a church, both men and women should never put stumbling blocks in front of one another that would trip each other up in a sexually immoral type of way. We need to carry ourselves, both men and women, with propriety, with modesty, with godliness. Now, verses 11 through 15 have naturally caused a lot of controversy in modern times. So let's see what Paul has to say here. In verse 11, Paul says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Let a woman learn quietly. Now, what a lot of people miss is that Paul wants women to learn. Because in the Jewish synagogue, only men were taught. The women did not get taught or learn. And so Paul wants the women to learn. Probably what was happening, we really don't know all the details, but probably what was happening is these false teachers were coming in and they were leading these women to somehow express their sexual liberation from men and they were being divisive in the church. They were maybe criticizing the male elders. We don't know really what they were doing. But here's what I want us to do over the next two weeks, okay? We need to be very, very careful that we let the text say what it says and not import things that it doesn't say. Let the text stand on its own and don't add things into it that it doesn't say and don't take things away from it that we want it to say because sometimes when we come to a text like this, we can import our modern sensibilities and make it say something that it doesn't say. Now, notice what it does not say. It does not say women should learn so that they can be able to teach. Now what Paul, what some think Paul is doing here by forbidding women to teach is the argument that some have, and we'll deal with these arguments next week, the argument that some has is that women weren't allowed to teach because they weren't educated. Once they got educated, once they learned, then they would be able to teach. But at this point in time, they weren't 
permitted to teach because they hadn't been taught yet. But notice what Paul says there. Paul does not say, I do not permit a woman to teach until she has enough biblical education to do so accurately. doesn't say that. Now, women, I want to encourage you to grow in your Bible knowledge and in your understanding of the Scriptures. Women, you should be challenged to grow theologically, to gain as much learning and growing as possible. Because here's the point. Ladies, I want you to be solid theologians. I want you to be deeply biblical and deeply discerning. Our church will not be strong if we do not have strong, godly, biblically discerning women. We need women who are strong in the truth. And I've been blessed over the past 18 years as your pastor to see women grow in the faith by leaps and bounds, whether it's through the preaching ministry, whether it's through women's ministry, whether it's through growth groups, whether it's through one-on-one discipleship. I have seen some women grow over the years, and we have some wonderfully godly and learned women in this church and so women you need to learn you need to grow get as much bible knowledge as you can you need to be discerning you need to be growing you need to be excelling in your bible knowledge so the issue here is not that women are learning which was radical in and of itself in paul's day but it's more the manner in which she is to learn now notice the wording that paul uses there let a woman learn quietly Paul does not say let a woman learn in silence. There's another Greek word for that. Okay, let me just dispel some myths here. This does not mean that a woman should never ask questions in a group setting or that a woman can never approach her pastor or an elder or, in fact, that a woman can never correct another man's theology. What it does mean is that women should not be overly argumentative They should not stir up trouble. They should not cause division. They should not be rebellious. They should not try to subvert the authority structure in the life of a church. And here's another important thing you need to understand, women. This does not mean that you pledge blanket submission to all men. Now, wives, you are to be submissive to your own husbands. To your own husbands. But you may not have to submit to another wife's husband in the way you submit to your own husband. It's not necessarily your friend's husband you're to submit to in the same way you submit to your own husband. But nevertheless, what Paul is saying here is that in the church, there's an authority structure where male elders are the leaders, and women should joyfully and voluntarily submit under the leadership of the preaching and teaching ministries of the church. But even there is a limit to her submission. Let me say this very carefully. Women, you should not submit to spiritual leaders who are ungodly, unethical, or teach false doctrine. There's a limit to that submission. If the leaders are ungodly, then you have no right to submit. And, women, you have the right to test the theology of your leaders. You need to be a good Berean. Not our brothers and sisters across the street over there, but the way the Bible, our good brothers and sisters over there. Acts 17, 11. Now these Jews, talking about the Bereans, the town of Berea. <clears throat> now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. 
They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So women, you have every right to examine the scriptures daily with eagerness to make sure that what I'm saying up here on this pulpit is accurate. You've got every right to study the scriptures and to research independently and to do your own homework to ensure that you are growing in biblical truth. In addition, we as elders can never force women to submit. Husbands, you can't force your wives to submit. It's a voluntary submission that wives voluntarily, joyfully submit to the leadership and elders and husbands. So far as we are men of integrity, that we preach sound doctrine, and we shepherd the flock with love and humility. So what's the ideal situation for church life? Here's the ideal. Now, this is not always true. Here's the ideal. The ideal is for godly men to lead the church in sound theology and to shepherd with integrity, to shepherd with compassion, to lead well, and for the women to joyfully and voluntarily submit to that leadership to where there's a great relationship between men and women in the life of the church. And so we want every single woman that's connected with the manual to be equipped with the truth, to learn the truth, to be solid in the truth, to be bible theologians we want that now we get to verse 12 which is the most controversial passage of scripture in first timothy and believe me there are volumes of books articles and essays that have been written on this over the past 40 to 50 years so before we explore this problematic passage i want to celebrate what all women can do in the life of our church now especially since this is mother's day I want to celebrate our mothers. So I want to just take a personal, I'm going to take a personal privilege here. I want to express sincere gratitude. To all the women in my life, to my mother who led me to the Lord, to my grandmothers who are godly examples, to my wife who's a better theologian than me, and challenges me with scriptural insight and wise discernment. In addition, Emmanuel Baptist Church would not function without women. Let me just say this. Our church would blow up if Sherry and Tarina weren't in charge of things. Okay, my ministry assistants, Sherry and Tarina, are a great encouragement. Jan, our children's ministry director, is a wonderful leader. We have Wonderful women in this church. I'm thankful for our elders' wives. I'm thankful for our deacons' wives. I'm thankful for all the the women in this church that have encouraged me, that's written notes to me, that pray for me, Uh, the the widows in this church, the married, single. If you're a woman in this church, let me just say this. You are awesome. And I'm thankful for your love and encouragement. It means a lot. So before I get to this Hard text, let me just say that a church would not function without women. It is, it, is, it is not even possible. And women can serve in so many ways in the life of a church. Women, you've been given a spiritual gift. And you need to use that spiritual gift in the life of the church. 
A church would not function without women using their spiritual gifts and being generous in serving. So we need, in a manual, qualified women to use their spiritual gifts in all areas in the church. You have unique giftings, you have unique talents, you have your beautiful personalities. You can do almost everything in the church except for two prohibitions. Just two. And Paul lists those right here. You can't teach other men in the gathered assembly and you can't be a pastor or slash an elder. Now let's, let's look at verse 12 and I want to ask three questions of this passage of Scripture. Verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man Rather, she is to remain quiet. We're going to come back to this verse next week, but let's just talk about three questions. First of all, what does it mean when Paul says, I do not permit? Secondly, what does it mean to teach? And third, what does it mean to have authority? Okay, those are the three, three issues in this text. So here, let's, let's ask these questions. First, what does the verb permit mean? When Paul says, I do not permit, is this just Paul's opinion? Some people believe this is just Paul's personal opinion. You can take it or leave it. It was only applicable at that time and that place in Ephesus. It's not a binding rule upon all churches. It was basically just Paul's personal opinion. Others say, well, it's written in the present tense Greek verb. So therefore, because it's in the present tense, it's only applicable for that time. Now, if you use that argument, then you can say that any present tense verb that shows up in the New Testament was only present for that time. And you'd have to throw out half of the New Testament. So I find these arguments to not be very strong because, number one, Paul is an apostle speaking under the authority of the Holy Spirit, being inspired to write what God wanted him to write. So it's not just his personal opinion. It is God's truth. But second, this command is for all the churches everywhere. He repeats this imperative to the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 14, 33-35. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Notice he says all the churches. The women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there's anyone they desire, if there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Notice that Paul says all the churches. He's not just talking about Ephesus. He's not just talking about Corinth. He's saying this is happening in all the churches. Now, Paul is not prohibiting women from speaking in other places outside the church, that she has to always be silent. She can't say anything. She can't work in the secular workforce. What this is restricted to is the life of the church. When the church is gathered together as the church, functioning as the church for worship together as God's people, these are commands that are timeless bound upon the church. Now, I will address some of this next week, but here's a major problem. If you claim that this was only during that time and place, that it was only specific to that culture, that it was, Paul was only addressing a specific thing back in ancient Ephesus and it doesn't apply today, that is the same argument, that is the exact same argument the churches have used to affirm homosexuality and gay marriage and ordaining gay clergy. I don't know if you know this, but in the 1950s to the 1970s, the mainline denominations had these arguments. 
And in the 1950s up to the 1980s, the mainline denominations began ordaining women using these same arguments. That it just wasn't applicable today, to today, it was only applicable back then. So they went to ordaining women in the 70s, 80s. And then what quickly happened? Every mainline denomination today ordains gays, accepts homosexual marriage, and has basically embraced the whole LGBTQ movement. They move very, cla- very quickly. So recent history has shown this. If you use the argument that it only applied back then and it doesn't apply today, those same arguments were being used in the 50s, 60s, and 70s to ordain women. It moved quickly. It's a slippery slope that moves very quickly to the next step. Well, homosexuality, didn't ha- you know, that, that, that doesn't apply today. That was only happening back then. It's not something that we deal with today that was only happening back then. So therefore, we can do it today. That's the slippery slope. So when Paul says, I do not permit... It's authoritatively God's will. It's not just his opinion. Second, what does it mean to teach? Now, is a woman restricted from all teaching in the church? Or is she only restricted from teaching men? Well, obviously not, because in Titus, the older women are to teach the younger women. Titus 2, 3-4, older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what's good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children. Women can graciously and joyfully and powerfully teach other women but also wives and and women and moms and grandmas you have the incredible privilege of teaching your children and grandchildren this is what happened to timothy himself second timothy 1 5 i'm reminded of your sincere faith a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother lois and your mother eunice and now i'm sure dwells in you so timothy's grandma and mother are mentioned there and then in second timothy 3, 14-15, but as for you, continue what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Well, where did you learn it from? Timothy, you learned it from your mom and your grandma. And how from childhood, they taught you from childhood, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, what does it mean that a woman is not allowed to teach men? What does the word teach mean? When you trace how the word teach is used in the pastoral epistles, 1st, 2nd Timothy, Titus, it means doctrinal, instructional, preaching and teaching of theology or Bible in a gathered worship service. Because in the next chapter, Paul is going to give the qualifications for elders. So just just look at chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. The saying is trustworthy if anyone aspires to the office of overseer. That's an elder, a pastor, overseer. He desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Okay, look at chapter 4, verse 13. Again, Paul's writing to pastors here, to a pastor. Until I come... Devote yourself, Timothy, to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Okay, look at chapter 5, verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and in teaching. And then you've got 2 Timothy. You don't need to turn there. It'll be on your screen. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And then Titus 
chapter 1, verse 9, talking about the qualifications of an elder. He, the elder, must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So the way that the word teaching is used in the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, it is safe to assume or to conclude that Paul does not permit a woman to do any type of doctrinal or theological or Bible teaching in a congregational setting where she functions in the position of a pastor or an elder. And we need to take this at at face value because I want you to notice what Paul does. Paul uses functional language, not just office language. Now, what do I mean by that? He does not say here in 1 Timothy, I do not permit a woman to be a pastor. He says, I do not permit a woman to verb teach the function. Now, the Bible does permit, prohibit, the Bible does forbid a woman from being a pastor, the office, the noun, but here it also prevents her from the verb, the function to teach men. Now, I'm going to address this next week because some argue that a woman can teach men as long as she's given permission by the elders, as long as she comes under the covering of the elders. I'm going to show how that's problematic. Some have also said, well, what Paul's prohibiting here is Paul's not allowing women to teach false doctrine. I, Paul's, Paul, women can teach men as long as they don't teach false doctrine. Now, notice there's no qualifier here. Is there any qualifier or adjective basically around the word teach? Does Paul say, I do not permit a woman to teach false doctrine? Is there any qualifier? He just says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. So teaching is doctrinal, authoritative type of teaching. Now, third question. What does it mean to have authority? Now, this is a huge debate because that word authority is very rare in the Greek text. And there's two ways that people have taken it. The first way is that it's a positive thing. Just the word authority means to preside, to lead, to govern the way that elders should do in a church. The positive way of just having authority as spiritual leaders. Others have taken it as a negative or a pejorative term, meaning that a woman can't grab that authority. A woman can't take that authority. The woman can't assume that authority as in a negative way. And you look at your top Greek scholars and New Testament commentators, and almost all of them take it the first way in that it is a positive way. It's only recently that there's been this move to say that a woman can't just grab authority from a man. This has happened in the NIV updated edition. The NIV in 2011 updated its translation of this word. It used to say the way the way that ESV says it. But notice what the NIV 2011 says. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. What it basically says is a woman can have authority... A woman can be an elder, a woman can, be a, can have authority over a man as long as the elders give her that authority. Or she doesn't grab that authority. But again, there's no qualification there as to what it says and what it doesn't say. So Paul is not telling women, you can go ahead and teach, you can go and have authority, as long as you don't teach false doctrine and as long as you don't grab authority from men and try to steal it from them. Mounts, who's one of the top scholars says this, Paul is prohibiting any type of authoritative teaching that places a woman over a man. 
So Paul puts no qualifiers or modifiers on the two verbs to teach or to have authority. I do not permit a woman, it's not his opinion, to teach authoritative instruction or have authority over a man. Now here's the question, the controversial question, and I alluded to it earlier. Does it apply today, or was it only for the Ephesian church during Paul's day when he addressed a specific problem? So let's ask a question. How do we know which one it is? How do you know if it's cultural to Paul's day? Like earlier, when I said greet each other with a holy kiss, you looked at me like, what's that? Well, that may have been something cultural for Paul's day that we don't do today. How do we know that this this command for women not to teach or have authority, how do we know it wasn't just cultural for Paul's day? Well, there are things that were written specifically to the culture of the day in the New Testament. And if you want to play that argument, then you might have to take out half the New Testament because they were written to a specific situation, but they do apply to us today. Now, here's the problem. Paul answers the question for us, but most people don't like the the answer. Paul answers it. Is it cultural? Was it only for back then? Or does it apply today for all time? Paul, nowhere in this passage of Scripture, says it only applied back then, but instead he actually roots it going all the way back to creation and the fall. Notice what he says. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain quiet. For, okay, that word for, that starts out in verse 13, for. In the Greek text, it tells you the reason. Paul's giving the reason why he's made that statement. For, Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. In the order of creation, Adam was created first to show that he has headship over his wife. Eve was created second. Now this doesn't mean she's a second-class citizen. This doesn't mean that somehow Eve is a second-class citizen. What it does mean is that in, in the order of creation, Adam was created first, Eve was second, and she's to joyfully submit under her husband's leadership. So basically what Paul's answer here is this. Genesis is the answer as to why Women can't teach or have authority. Adam was created first, Eve was second. It's God's good design for creation. It's how God ordered it. You may not like it, but that's how God did it. God created Adam first, then he created Eve. And so here's what happened in Genesis 3. I I don't know if you've fully thought about what happened in Genesis chapter 3 when the serpent came slithering into the garden. Here's the problem. Adam was responsible for being the spiritual leader of the family. His job was to protect his wife. His job was to kill that serpent the moment he saw it. Here's my question. How was the serpent ever led into the garden in the first place? When Adam saw that serpent heading towards his wife, he should have killed the serpent right then or stood in front of the serpent or protected his wife, but he left her vulnerable. He was passive in his leadership. He left her vulnerable. On the other hand, Eve did not submit to her husband. Eve did not go to Adam and say, Adam, how do I deal with this? Adam, protect me from this. She wanted to act independently of her husband. She thought she could handle the devil on her own terms. She didn't need the help of her husband. She could act independently. And she found out really quickly that she was no match for Satan's tactics. He was clever. 
he was seductive. He's, he deceived her. As a matter of fact, when God speaks to the woman in Genesis 3.13, the Lord said to the woman, What is this that you've done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. Now, Genesis does not tell us that Adam was deceived, but that Eve was. Now, both were accountable for their sins. But here's the problem. Eve acted as an independent woman doing her own thing and did not submit to the protection or authority of her husband during the temptation. Adam is just as guilty for not protecting his wife and being passive. You see, here's the difference between Adam and Eve. Adam sinned willfully. Eve was seduced. But they're both accountable for their sins. See, this is what happens when men are passive in churches. When men don't take spiritual leadership seriously. You see, what's our job as elders? What's the, jo- what's the job of the male elders in the church? Our job is to protect this flock from Satan's tactics. To stand in the gap when Satan comes to try to attack. We as the spiritual leaders are to stand as prayer warriors, as defenders, as those that would protect the boys, the girls, the men, the women. We are to be the spiritual protectors of the church. We're not to be passive. Like, like Adam was in the garden. And see, when we abdicate that role, when we say, hey, we're going to be passive, we're going to let the women be in charge of the preaching and teaching and spiritual leadership, then we're not protecting the women. We're leaving them vulnerable, and there's a vacuum in leadership, and the women come in and they assume a role they were never meant to assume in the first place, and it causes problems because it reverses God's order. It reverses the order that God had. Now, you may think, Pastor Sean, you sound backwards. You sound chauvinistic. You actually sound kind of misogynist and discriminatory not to allow women to teach and preach. Well, let me just say this. You you can think that. I'm okay if you think that. But it is God's good and beautiful plan for His church. So regardless of what the culture may think or even what other churches may do, As long as I'm your pastor, we're going to obey Scripture and conform our practices to God's eternal truths. Now, verse 15, I'm going to address next week because it's the strangest and most difficult passage in almost the whole New Testament to understand what Paul's saying. So what conclusion do we come to after thinking about these things, the plain reading of the Scriptures? And and, and how it's been understood for the past 1,950 years, it's only really the past 50 years that this passage has had some confusion. We must conclude that this is God's plan for all churches in all places at all times. It's not just a cultural issue that happened back in Ephesus back in the day. So therefore, for Emmanuel Baptist Church to be faithful to the Scriptures, we must obey this command, and we must not allow women to teach men or to have positions of authority where they serve as pastors or elders. Now, how do we respond? to a passage of Scripture like this. Well, men, may we pray for God's grace to be strong, to be courageous, to be godly men who protect and lead and are examples to our families and to our nation. That we're men, two words, men, I want you to understand. You can be a man of courage and also a man of compassion. Let's be men of courage, but let's also be men of compassion. Women, women, would you pray for God's strength to be godly women? 
women of modesty, women of gentleness, women who serve as examples of, of Bible scholars, of learning the truth, of, of holiness, of compassion, of servanthood. So here's the point. Nobody gets off the hook today. Okay, men and women, we, we, we both have to deal with the issue. We both, men and women, need God's grace and God's power to be the men and the women he's called us to be for his glory alone. So we need to be faithful to God's eternal plan for how to conduct ourselves in his church. We need to be obedient to the scriptures regardless of what the culture thinks, regardless if people misunderstand us, regardless of what other churches do, what other Christians think, because here's the point. We're accountable to the lordship of Christ alone. And we submit to his good design for how men and women should function in the church. And let's just say this. It's not our church. It's his. And he sets the rules. We may not like how God set up his universe or how God set up creation or how God sets up his church, but we have no right to change it because it's his church. Christ is the Lord of his church, and as such, we submit to how God has ordained it. So, as we think about how we respond to this difficult passage, I'm just asking us, let's be faithful, faithful to the text, let's be obedient, let's be joyful, and let's glorify God in everything we do. Let's walk out of this place saying, regardless of what culture thinks, we're going to stand by God's word and our desire is to glorify him in all that we do. As men, as women, as boys and girls, as mothers, as fathers, as grandmothers, as grandfathers, as children, wherever you are this morning, would you make it your aim to glorify God in all that you do for his pleasure alone, not for ours. So let me ask you to bow your heads this morning and let's go to him in prayer. Father, we come before you this morning and we know that this is a um, somewhat of a difficult passage. It sounds kind of foreign, maybe to modern sensibilities. It sounds kind of different and maybe these are truths that maybe some people in this room have never really understood or had explained. And so, Lord, we just want to leave this place being obedient to your truth. And, Lord, I do pray for the men in this church that you would raise up godly men who would lead Lead with compassion, lead with courage. Be strong in the faith, not contentious, not divisive, but men of prayer, lifting holy hands in prayer, watchmen on the wall, protectors, defenders. Lord, help us to be protectors and defenders of the truth and protectors and defenders of our, of our families and our children and our grandchildren. Lord, I pray for the women in this church that, Lord, you would raise up an army of godly, spirit-filled Scripture-saturated, godly women. Who would lead their families and their children with that great example. Lord, we're, th we're so thankful for the women in our lives. Lord, we can't say enough about the women that have influenced us and impacted us. Lord, would you bless the women in this church? I don't know what all of them are going through. Lord, there may be some that are going a very hard time right now, but Lord, you do. But Lord, would you just equip them, encourage them, bless them, give them, be the lifter of their heads. 
Lord, if there's any physical needs they're going through or any emotional needs or financial needs, Lord, or, or marital, Lord, whatever it be, family needs, would you answer their prayers? And Lord, would you just equip these women, undergird these women, raise up these women. Lord, we know our women do so much. And sometimes we can be passive and just kind of let them do it and not, not thank them or not encourage them and not support them. So Lord, help us as men to be a great encouragement and support to our wives and our moms and our grandmothers and those women in our lives that you've blessed us with. So help us to leave this place with our ultimate aim to glorify you and all that we do and to be obedient to your truth no matter what the cost. May you give us the strength to do that this week, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. I will be here after the service. If you need someone to talk to, someone